Today's episode of the NBA Show is brought to you by Bose. As the official sound of the NFL, Bose gets players closer to their peak performance and gets you closer to them. How? With powerful products like their Quiet Comfort 35 wireless headphones. These are Bose's best headphones yet. No noise, no wires, just your music and you. Welcome to another edition of the Ringer NBA Show. I'm Chris Vernon. Joining me today is the Ringer's own Kevin O'Connor. What's up, Kevin? Not a lot, Chris. What's going on with you? Nice timing on your article yesterday praising the uh, Los Angeles Clippers for why they are so awesome because their bench is so awesome, or at least in part, and then they go out and uh, another bludgeoning last night. They beat the Nets 127-95. to 95. Let's just talk about the Clippers so far. They're 10-1. and one. They're the only team in the league that is top five in offensive efficiency and defensive efficiency. Um, I think it's fair to say we all went into the season thinking – you know, this is going to be the Warriors and everyone else. And at least so far, it does not appear it's going to be the Warriors and everyone else. It's at least going to be the Warriors and the Clippers and everyone else in the West. Yeah, so before the season, Doc Rivers said he didn't think there was much separation between the Warriors and the Clippers. And I and I think a lot of other people kind of just laughed at that. I mean, it was just kind of a silly statement, and maybe that'll turn out to be true. But so far, it hasn't been the case. The Clippers have been the best team in the NBA so far. And as they always have been, their their big three, their their starting lineup is really, really, really unbelievable. DeAndre Jordan, Chris Paul, JJ Redick, Blake Griffin. That's no surprise. But what is a surprise is their bench. It has been just unbelievable so far this year. Doc Rivers was going to experiment with staggering um, Blake Griffin and Chris Paul to keep them on the court at all times, but that he hasn't had to do that because their bench has just been so good. It's not really the way they're scoring with Austin Rivers and Raymond Felton and Maurice Spates. It's just the way they're defending. They're switching all screens. Um, they've just been really tenacious on the ball, and that's allowing them to play all their stars together and still maintain their leads with their really, really strong bench so far early on this year. You had this note that when those guys play together, which you would not think would be a successful lineup necessarily, Crawford, Rivers, Felton, and then Spates and Johnson, right? I mean, that's obviously a small lineup, but the fact that like when those five guys are playing together, they're dominating. Like they've got the numbers were crazy. Were they like plus fourteen or something? <laughs> Yeah, I think after last night, they're plus 15, which means they're outscoring opponents by 15 points per 100 possessions. And that's still way worse than their regular starting five. But that's still, if you look at all five-man units around the league that have played at least 50, 50 minutes or so, that's still one of the better lineups in the league in terms of uh, net rating, which is the difference between offensive and defensive rating. So, yeah, that, that unit is just absolutely slaying it right now. And will that sustain? I don't know. I mean, we don't know that for sure. We, we really don't. Um, Raymond Felton, Austin Rivers, Jamal Crawford, Wesley Johnson, Maurice Spates, those aren't really names that you'd expect to be dominating like that, especially when they aren't playing with one of the stars on the team. But really, I mean, we have to give the, those guys time. Maybe it will sustain. Maybe it won't. I'd kind of lean towards that it won't, at least um, on the defensive end. I think, if anything, they could be a little bit better offensively than they have been so far because those guys really aren't shooting the ball that well at all. Um, so we'll see what happens. I, I think at some point the Clippers might have to shuffle the rotation a little bit. Uh, they're 10-1. and 1. We'll see. 
Um, but if you're them right now, it's really nice for them to have the start. But that's always been their deal, right? You just had to wait until you got six, seven minutes into the game. They put in the bench, and you could bludgeon their bench, right? If their bench is – forget yeah. if they're going to be a big positive. If they're just not a big net negative, right? If they can just play even, hold the fort, right, uh, then that team's got a chance to be pretty damn good. And I'll say this, Doc Rivers gotten beat up a lot for his general managing skills. I think it's fair to say he did Rightfully a good job so. this offseason. He really did. Well, yeah, I mean, I think I think Doc rightfully was bashed for a lot of the moves that he's made over the years, um, bringing in just guys that are proven meh players, right? right. Um, and I, he did that again this, this summer because, understandably, he doesn't have a lot of, much of a choice. The guys that he has take up so much of the cap room that he's forced to sign players that are on league minimum contracts. Um, he can't sign guys for, for – Ten million dollars to have a star six man come off the bench. He can't. He doesn't have that ability. Having so many stars on the roster, so it's hard to be a general manager um, and bring in talent off the bench. That's why this year, um, again, I thought some of the names he brought in were those same names. The same names we're familiar with: Brandon Bass, Raymond Felton, just guys like that who really aren't anything special. But so far, it's working, and I think more than anything. It's just the way they're switching screens. Um, it's a small lineup, but all those guys are quick laterally. Uh, Wesley Johnson has been really good, I think. And Maurice Spates somehow is defending better than he ever has, it seems. We'll see if it sustains. I, um, it's nice to see, though, because they have quickly, quickly become a dominant team. Not because of just their starters, but their bench is the big dif- differentiator so far. Well, Spade signed a minimum deal, right? I mean, he got a he, a very low contract, so he's got a lot of money on the line. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he'll switch everything, ways, Kevin. He'll switch everything yeah, this year. Yeah, I mean, yeah, these guys. Yeah, you're right. You bring up a good point that some of these guys they're on league minimum contracts and they're getting an opportunity to cash in. Yes, exactly. Yeah. All right, you compared this and, and their depth so far to how reliant teams are, like the Rockets, like the Thunder, um, on their respective stars, um, James Harden and Russell Westbrook. And, and you kind of talked about like how like the Thunder are, are miserable when Westbrook is not on the court and Harden is having this you know video game statistical season, and yet they really struggle without him on the court. If you can, just speak to what we have seen so far. You and I, at the beginning, before the season even started, um, you had done you had done a bunch of research on super high usage guys in the NBA and the lack of success that their teams have ultimately had. And it seems like at least so far this season, they're both right around 500 teams. Um, but it seems like that's playing out, right? That when you have somebody that you are so reliant on that it uses up so many of your possessions that you are dead without them. Yeah. Um, I'll pull up that stat right now. Uh, it, We are really seeing that pan out, especially with um, Oklahoma City and Houston. So over the last 40 years of the NBA, only 17 players have ever had a usage rate of over 35. They finished the season with a usage over 35. That means. Can you just explain usage rate to like for anybody out there that's like, what the hell is a usage rate? So essentially we're talking about the Kobe Bryant seasons where he's just dominating the ball and it's all on his shoulders. We're talking about Allen Iverson in 2001. We're talking about guys that they were the source of 
everything for that team where there wasn't really other guys on the roster they could rely on. And so the um, number is percentage of possessions that you are yes. responsible for. Yes, uh, it's uh, percentage of possessions used. So that factors in on the offensive end, points scored, assists, et cetera, yeah. um, right. turnovers. So, um, yeah, so we're, we're talking about guys that had just high usage years, Kobe, Westbrook, Wade, Jordan. So this year, um, Westbrook, I believe, has a usage over 35, and chances are he'll sustain that because they rely on him for absolutely everything. And we're seeing the effects of that when they're without him. Um, when Westbrook is on the court, as you would expect, they are a tremendous team. Uh, they are outscoring teams by, I believe, six points per 100 possessions, which isn't outstanding, but it's the difference is when he's off the court, they're at their worst. They're being outscored by 20 points per 100 possessions. So they are a great team when Westbrook's on the court, and they are worse than the Sixers when he's off the court. And it's not breaking news that the, the Thunder would be better with Russell Westbrook on the court. It's not breaking news that the Rockets are way better with James Harden on the court. Uh, I think everybody understands that when star players are on the court, the team is better. The difference is is with with. With the Clippers, they are having, they are playing well when their stars are off the floor, when all three of them are off the floor. But the Thunder and the Rockets, they are not getting the same benefit of having just good, be- good depth that's really um, keeping them afloat when those guys are on the bench. Yeah, well, a part of it, and 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 you and I spoke to this before the season is you you look up and down the Oklahoma City roster at least, and you go, all right, who else is scoring every single night? Right. Like, who is the guy that you are going to count on? Because you've got to get X amount of points to be able to win these games on a, on, on a nightly basis. And it, w- it was hard to find, like, when we were going up and down their roster. Like, who, who else? Like, there is going to be a tremendous load on Westbrook, and he has carried it so far this year. But it's kind of, uh, it's kind of playing out how at least I thought it would, where it's like, all right, some nights, uh, you know, it, there's just not somebody that every single night or, if Westbrook has a down night, like if he doesn't go huge, that's going to pick up the that's going to pick up the slack like they used to, you know. Yeah, and you know the funny thing is, some of their guys, especially the younger guys, are playing a little bit better than I expected them to. I mean, Sabonis, um, yep. he's not a guy you necessarily will lean on to create for you. He's not that guy, but someone like him, I think maybe that's a good sign for them down the line. Um, if, if he's performing well, he's especially shooting the three well. But one, one of the issues so far is if you look at um, on-off splits. So we talked about Victor Oladipo before the season and how important it was for him to have success. Uh, he's performed very well when Westbrook is on the floor. He's, he's shooting 37% from three, um, around this, uh, 45% from two-point range, um, playing fairly well efficiently. But without Westbrook on the floor – those numbers are going way down because they're relying on him to create for himself. Um, he has an effective field goal percentage of 33 when Westbrook is off the floor um, compared to 52 when he's on. So, look, that's the guy that you need to maintain his levels of efficiency as a scorer and playmaker when Westbrook's not off the floor for seven or eight minutes a game. But he's not doing that. Um, and that's what they really need for him to be that guy um, when Westbrook's taking his breather. So as you chronicled, there are these. Uh, there were seventeen guys that have these insanely high usage rates throughout years, and, and as I recall, the level of team success outside of like the Iverson year where he carried that team to the finals, um, and there's been maybe one or two others. Generally, those teams have not had a lot of. 
team's success. Like the players have had crazy years, but the team has not. Uh, th- that has not been a recipe for success over the course of the years. Yeah. Um, so yeah. To sorry, I should have finished that stat off earlier. Um, look, uh, so over the last forty years, seventeen players finished with a usage over thirty-five or greater. Um, of those players, only one player led his team to the finals. Five lost in the opening round. Six missed the playoffs entirely, including Westbrook's forty-five win Thunder a couple of years ago. And of those seventeen teams. They finished on average with a win percentage of 52, which equates to about 43 wins per year. So those teams were all about 500 teams. And we're seeing that so far with Oklahoma City and Houston with two super high usage rate guys um, where they are the source for everything on their rosters. And without them, they are really not that good. Um, They're average. Rockets are six and four the thunder are six and five they're just slightly above average so far and they need contributions from their guys off their bench the thunder need victor oladipo to really step his game up when he's not playing with westbrook the houston rockets really need patrick beverly to get back and be good when he's healthy um and maybe they'll stagger him and uh, james harden i think they should i think beverly maybe could be a little bit more effective off the bench even than he has been as a starter and he's been pretty good the past couple of years too uh, they, they just need guys to elevate their game off the bench or they need to find other players through trades something in a billion years i would have never thought i would read even 10 or 11 games into the season is you talking about westbrook and harden and their high usage rates and you're talking about how you know, how, ba- how bad their teams are when they are off the court, and you juxtapose it against a team that is using its depth to its great advantage, and you bring up the Lakers. <laughs> like, I was like, <laughs> I mean, like, who would have ever, who would have guessed that they would be the source of, like, praise? <laughs> even, Walt even, a magic man. even, even at this point in the season that you're like, hey, you know what? They should actually, it'd be better if they were more like the Lakers. Like, what planet <laughs> am I? Is it the supermoon? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it might be the supermoon. <laughs> um, yeah, look, uh, the, it's not that the Lakers necessarily have more uh, quote-unquote talent off their bench. Those guys right. are just performing exceptionally well. And it's just an example of what it could do for a team because their starters <clears throat> statistically have been average. Um, they, they're barely outscoring opponents, but their bench has been outstanding. They're running with their five-man bench unit led by Lou Williams, Jordan Clarkson, then the front court of uh, rookie Brandon Ingram, Larry Nance, and Tarek Black. Um, and they're outscoring teams by 29 points per 100 possession. They're just slaying teams, that five-man unit. So look, that's what it's done for the Lakers. The Lakers, if they didn't have a good bench, if they had a very poor bench, they would not be 6-5 and five and in the playoff conversation right now. For them, it has elevated them from a bottom feeder team to a borderline playoff team. For the Rockets and the Thunder, it can elevate them from a middle, middle of the conf, uh, playoff uh, seeding rankings to close to the top and it hasn't done that so it's it's really i just look at the bench this year is it's just we're seeing it early on the bench can be the differentiator between being average and good or good or great all right lakers are they a flash in the pan or are we going to look up and they have a chance at something like a 35 or 40 win season you know i've thought a lot about this chris and in many ways i'm not sure but i just want to say that they're not a flash in the pan and that what we're seeing is for real because the way they're, the way they're executing Luke Walton's motion-based system that he's bringing to LA from Golden State, 
it's just they look so good. They I've never I haven't seen the team play this well as a team in years. Just the way the Kobe Bryant farewell tour has gone. Um, I just wonder if these these young players, especially Brandon Ingram, Jordan Clarkson, D'Angelo Russell, they get better over the course of the season as they grow within the system. Um, so while right now, sure, it's very very possible that this is just a flash in the pan. They're overachieving. I, I just think that they are in a perfect system to grow together and as individuals. And maybe by the end of the year, we're talking about Brandon Ingram. I mean, right now, Ingram has not been great. Um, he's been pretty good defensively and offensively. He's not been that, that that efficient. But maybe by the end of the year, we're talking about Ingram as a really, really good rookie, um, which he, I think he will be because of his ability just to play different roles. Um, so I just think that they, they can only get better and maybe they sneak into the playoffs and maybe they're a tough out. Uh, and I think, I think that's good for the league if they are. How much credit should Luke Walton get? A lot. You know, it's always hard what we do with coaches, right? Because it was like last year. I think there was at least some sentiment that like, yeah, okay, well, Steve Kerr's out and Luke Walton's on the sideline. He's got this crazy, uh, he's got this crazy team and he is certainly on the sidelines for a large portion of this historic season. But there was at least some sentiment that like you could have, it's not Luke Walton standing on the sideline. Anybody could stand on that sideline. That team is devastating. And so you never really knew how much credit to give Luke Walton for being a part of that. For anybody for that matter, right? I mean, like we gave Elvin Gentry a lot of credit and then Elvin Gentry went to the Pelicans and it's like, okay, Elvin Gentry might be really great, but... You know, you are you are at the mercy of roster, let's say. Yet, in this particular case, it does feel like Luke Walton is getting a lot of credit, and rightfully so. Yeah, I mean, you, you just look at what the roster personnel did last year under Byron Scott. And a lot of these players who, you know, entering the draft, you thought they had talent. They did not look like they had talent last year playing next to Kobe, um, obviously dominating the ball. And... The Byron Scott's ancient system, not which didn't emphasize the three three pointer or or ball movement for that matter, um, and now they have Luke Walton who is playing a modern system. They are really just zipping the ball around the court. Um, just it's just the way they're playing. They they've quickly just adapted the system, and in some ways that's the big surprise to me more than anything else is that they went from one system drastically different than the one that they're playing in now and already a lot of these players are just you know they're just embracing it and that's why i just think at some point over the course of the year maybe they take even take another step forward once these young guys continue to develop but luke walton i mean he is i mean the job he's done is just incredible so far you had in the in the notes part of your column yesterday, you brought up a bunch of different things that are going on league-wide, one of which was this idea that Willie Cauley-Stein could be traded from Sacramento. And your, I guess your point of view, because we're, we're about to get into that part of the season where we're now, everybody's about to have played double-digit games or a little more. Um, they're, they're looking at their roster. They've had a little bit of time to evaluate it, and they're deciding where they need to plug holes. And then... Uh, looking around the league to see what could, what could help them and then what they're willing to get rid of. And at least so far, I mean, imagine this, a team with 25 centers on their team um, is willing to get rid of one of them. 
And so Cauley Stein, <laughs> right? I mean, they get, they get drafting centers every, uh, like yeah. every, you know, I mean, they even drafted two centers this past year, yep. um, in the first round, no less. So that they were getting, that they were willing to move off of Willie Cauley Stein. And you, I think your point of view was that there needs to be patience with him, that he is a slow developing player, and that cutting ties or moving off of Willie Cauley Stein would be unwise. Um, and so, all right. First, uh, let me just get your take on the report that at least you know that that re- that first report that called this nine could get moved. Yeah. So Mark Stein from ESPN reported last week that the Kings are open to trading Willie Colley Stein. And look, that's like you said, Chris, that's not a surprise. They have a ton of centers on their roster, um, so you can get it. And Willie Colley Stein has struggled so far. So we, you know, you get it, right? <laughs> you want to trade? You want? Uh, to maximize you know his value if you think that maybe you won't get the best value for him if you wait then yeah maybe you should deal him now but i don't think that's the best best path anyway just because of how he developed in college after his freshman and sophomore seasons i thought watching him play that this was a guy who had all the athleticism in the world all the potential in the world to be a great defensive player and to be a great rim runner but he just didn't he just didn't have it. He just didn't have good fundamentals. He fouled too much. And then his junior year, he came out, and I thought he was one of the best big man prospects in the draft. And if any, anything, I thought he was a little bit underrated um, looking around people's rankings or across the league. Uh, Collie Stein, he is one of the most athletic big men to enter the league in years. His ability just to move laterally. Um, I remember one instance, this is going back to college and the tournament, where he just sprinted across the court with Jerry and Grant, uh, contested his shot at the final second, and Kentucky won. Earlier in that game, he switched onto Jerry and Grant and came from the free throw line to the three-point line and blocked his shot. It's th- Those were the little moments watching him in college where you say, okay, this guy can be a really – high-end defensive player in the NBA. And we've seen flashes of that the last one and a, one and a quarter seasons almost. Um, so they need to give him time. The, the issue is, is that he's playing on a team where he has said openly that he's had trouble looking over his shoulder, worrying about, worrying about if he's going to get substituted out of the game if he makes a mistake. And look, you can say that that's his fault, that – that he needs to forget it. He needs to forget that he just needs to play, but every guy is different and we can't, we can't underestimate how a person's personality will impact their success within an environment. So it's very possible that he won't find success in Sacramento and no matter what they do, he might not find success until he ends up on his second team. Assuming the second team is a great situation where he can develop without um, worrying about, I'm getting subbed out of the game. Um, Some guys, they just need the right situation to develop. And if I'm a team that feels like we can take this guy in and give him a steady 15 to 20 minutes per game where he doesn't have to have any concerns or any pressure, then I would be going for him. Um, And I think the Kings do have that. They are just emphasizing. They are just trying to win with Costa Kufis more so than I think they should be. Um, Kufis is not a guy who long-term is going to help you win games. I think he is the guy that should kind of be pushed aside a little bit. And Cauley Stein is the person that they should be really just funneling minutes to and, and just trying to develop him to be the guy that starts next to DeMarcus Cousins. Because look, 
I, I have I've had the perspective for a few years now that they should and eventually will trade DeMarcus Cousins. But if they insist on building a team that can win around DeMarcus Cousins, they need to develop guys that can become that player. And Cauley Stein is one of them. And by just burying him on the bench, you're just not helping yourself doing that. So oh, this, in many ways, I, I, I think they're just I think they're just shooting themselves in the foot by by burying Cauley Stein on the bench instead of just feeding him minutes and letting him develop and work through his mistakes. Oh, this is good. This is really good. Because a lot of this has to do with whatever your draft evaluation on a guy was, right? Because we're about to plot twist here, Kevin. Plot twist. Okay, I'm I'm ready. I can't I can't I can't stand him as a player. And I would I would trade him immediately. Yes. I would trade him immediately. I'm serious. Is the the hair? (laughs) Here's the thing. I don't like guys that cannot pass, dribble, or shoot. And he is deficient in all three of those. <laughs> all right, okay, everybody always talks about everybody always talks about his athleticism and his defense and all the all this all this other crap. He cannot pass, he cannot dribble, and he cannot shoot. These theme, these have always been, at least in my opinion, necessary skills to play basketball successfully. And so I got no use for him. Honestly, right. I would I would get rid of him. I thought that draft pick was stupid, and I'd cut bait. <laughs> okay, to to be fair. To be fair, you're right that he does struggle in some of those just basic fundamental categories. However, um, I think we have to consider, is he the type of guy where, so, okay, for, for one of the articles I wrote recently, one of the scouts said to me, just because a guy doesn't do something doesn't mean that he can't do it. And one of the examples he brought up was um, Bryce Johnson from North Carolina he barely shot jump shots at all in college, but then he, then you look at him in workouts and you look at him in the summer league and he's splashing deep mid-range two-point jumpers. And maybe you think of him as a guy who can eventually extend his range to three-point range. Now, with Cauley Stein, I'm not saying that he'll be a good shooter or a great shooter, but I know Draft Express was at one of his open workouts um, prior to the draft and the dude has pretty good mechanics on his jump shot and he was splashing threes and workouts. And look, I know it's just in an open gym, open workout, no, no pressure. Um, it's just a perfect environment to look good at something that you might actually not be something good at, but he looked pretty good. <laughs> I mean that we can't, can't deny it. It's stunned to be seeing it. And he talked about himself as a guy who he thought he could eventually be someone who does shoot the ball and, I think maybe that's possible. He good form, good touch on his shot, and he just hasn't really gotten the opportunity in the in the NBA. And maybe that's the type of attribute that he has that we don't see, but he actually does have locked away. Um, and maybe in a new environment, they would allow him to do that when he's off the ball. Maybe he can spot up and shoot corner threes for you down the line. I don't know, but seeing the video of that workout from Draft, Draft Express, I. Highly recommend looking it up on YouTube. Yeah, maybe. Maybe he can shoot jumpers. However, you're right. I don't think he's going to be that good of a passer, and he doesn't do those, and he still doesn't rebound the ball quite well. He has weaknesses. Um, He's not never going to be a truly great transcendent player, but maybe he can do a little bit more than he's shown. This is going to be good because, listen, we get to watch it play out, right? And here's the other thing I'll say. I've covered Dave Yeager for a long time. If he wants that guy traded – He'll be in their ear every day until he gets traded. Trust me on this. <laughs> yeah. I saw it happen with Quincy Pondexter, 
I saw it happen with Benno Udre when they made the move for uh, Mario Chalmers. All these things happened in Memphis. I'm telling you, Jaeger will be in their ear until that kid gets moved. If that's what he wants, if that's what he wants. Now, if that's you know what I mean. If he's the if he's the reason behind it. And to your point on the whole Costa Kufas thing and everything, it is you know. And this is a this is the thing that coaches always have to balance. Coaches just want. And this is this is not healthy for long term success of organization. Coaches always want the guy that they think can help them win that night. Yeah, more yep. so than they're you know giving a player a lot of rope. You know, the truth is, in order to develop players, sometimes you have to take losses. Mm-hmm. And most guys are not willing to do that because they know they've only got a couple of years anyway at any yep. of these jobs. Because we, you know, the NBA fires coaches after a year or two. You don't get yeah, much rope if true. you're the coach. If you don't, you don't get much rope if you're the coach. So these coaches don't give players a lot of rope, right? Yeah, that's I true. Mean, there's only, like guess who guess who gives players a lot of rope and 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 who we praise for developing guys. Greg Popovich, he has no problems with his security, right? Uh, Eric Spolstra in Miami, no issues with his security, right? Um, and you look around the league, and there's just so few guys that are, have such levels of security in their job that they're willing to go out and develop players because they ain't worried about losing their job. The rest of these guys are all worried about losing their job, so they'd rather play Costa Kufus rather than a second-year guy, or they'd rather play uh, just whoever it may be, any, any any old veteran instead of a young guy. No, you're 100% right, Chris, and that's that's the underly- underlying factor here is that ultimately this isn't really in Dave Yeager's control because he's going to play the guys who he thinks are going to help him win the games on that specific night, as you said. And I think that's kind of where I look at ownership. I, I you know, from a top-down perspective, I just think this team needs to look itself look at itself in the mirror and say we need to focus on development. And right now they haven't necessarily done that um and i don't think that could happen until they trade demarcus cousins and there was a report by from sean devaney of sporting news the other day that some general managers general general managers and executives across the league think cousins this is the year cousins will be traded and if, if if i you know look and i know no Kings fan wants to even think about the possibility of trading demarcus cousins but if you were the kings and you were to get a high first round draft pick this year, another future first round pick, two, three young players. If you just got a King's ransom, you would look at the King's roster after the trade deadline and you would think, oh, we have a pretty bright future. We have two two lottery picks in a stacked draft class. We have all these young players. We can focus on playing time for Collie Stein, Scalabissier, Papianis, all the, whoever they get in the trades for Cousins. Then they get the two two high picks in the lottery. And look, maybe suddenly the future looks bright because they can start to focus on just playing all the young kids and just focusing on development. Because look, look at how bright the futures look for team. We talked about the Lakers earlier. The Sixers are one in nine. They're one in nine, but their team has a bright future. We just watched Saric, Embiid, all the young guys on their roster because they're focusing on development. The Kings right now aren't focusing on development. And I think that's that's the perspective that needs to change from a top-down perspective. So it has to come from ownership that, yes, we are ready to rebuild as an organization. And I understand that they haven't been so far, but I think there comes a time where 
they need to realize that. Quick break to get a word from our sponsors. Before we go on, I want to thank today's sponsor, Bose. As the official sound of the NFL, Bose gets players closer to their peak performance and gets you closer to them. How? With powerful products like their Quiet Comfort 35 wireless headphones. I have a pair of these myself. I can confidently say these are the best Bose headphones yet. No noise, no wires, just your music and you. For more information, visit Bose.com. Late Night TV just got darker. Jesus Nice and the Kid Mero have landed their own late night TV show on Viceland, the new TV channel from Vice. It's called Jesus and Miro. Late nights at 11 p.m. You may know these guys from the Bodega Boys podcast. Yes, podcasters can become TV stars these days. You might also know them from Twitter.com. Apparently, Twitter people can get TV shows, too. This is not your typical late night show. No A-list celebrities selling their movie, no scripted jokes, no band, just two guys from the Bronx giving their takes on culture, politics, sports, entertainment, and other subjects they don't really know anything about. Watch the show because Miro has mad kids and Jesus loves sneakers and they're funny and other late night shows are corny. Watch Jesus and Miro on TV on Viceland every Monday through Thursday night at 11 p.m. Go to Viceland.com to find your channel and check out some free episodes. The brand is strong. Two other things you mentioned in your article yesterday that I want to get to. The first of which is why are the nets not horrible? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you would expect them to be really bad so far, but it's the same, I think it's the same factor that we talked about with the Lakers. Kenny Atkinson, the system he has installed with the Nets, they have just embraced it. All the young players in their roster, their games seems, seem to have been elevated. Sean Kilpatrick's playing very well off the bench. Rondé Hollis Jefferson is really 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 having a good solid season so far um jeremy lynn hasn't played in every game he's missed i think the last four or five or so but in the games that he did play early on in the year he was quite good um look i mean they they don't have a lot of talent on their team but the system atkinson has installed has elevated the play of the, those young players in the same way that Luke Walton's system did for the Lakers, or you look at the Brad Stevens of the Celtics three years ago, um, they were not a good roster, but they played competitively. I don't know if the Nets will finish the year close to 500 like they are right now. I don't think they will, just because eventually I think that just the talent runs out. <laughs> um, but they are certainly a tougher out than I think anybody could have expected. The other one I wanted to mention is a rookie point guard who, because he's not on national TV a lot, or you know, league pass fans, hardcore NBA fans, uh, might have paid notice or seen him so far. But uh, generally, he's not going to be a guy that gets a lot of print, and that's Malcolm Brogdon. Um, and I actually watched him the other night in a game and thought he was fantastic. And it, it struck me as one of as I was watching Malcolm Brogdon because, of course, I saw him play a lot at Virginia because he was on that great Virginia team. You know, it seems like, and we've done this over the years uh, with, the, with in the NBA. It's it, Chandler Parsons is a SEC Player of the Year, and everybody passes on him, and he goes in the second round. And Draymond Green is the Big Ten Player of the Year, and everybody passes on him, and he goes in the second round. And it just felt like the other night, like at least when I was watching him, like yeah. Of course, Malcolm Brogdon's friggin' good. Like the guy was ACC Player of the yeah. Year. He was ACC Defensive Player of the Year. And like, I guess everybody tries to like, you know, pick apart these guys. I know he's twenty three years old, but like, yeah. he's six five. And guess what? He was totally awesome in an awesome conference. 
on a team that like was not exactly loaded with a bunch of NBA stars. Of course, Malcolm Malcolm Brogdon's good. Is it is it just another one of those long line of examples of you know the 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 Draymond Greens and the Jay Crowders and the Chandler Parsonses and these guys that were you know like conference player of the year, great players in these conferences, and then we get to draft night and it's like. You take some, you know, eighteen-year-old that uh, that averaged four points and uh, two rebounds in his freshman campaign as a one and done, right? Like, I, I, it feels like Brogdon might be the next one. Am I jumping the gun on that? No, I, I think I, I don't know if he'll be a dream on Jay Crowder type, but I think absolutely he will be on that long list of players who just drop for whatever reason. And I think I think the reasons some teams or scouts had were understandable. Um, like you said, he's twenty-three. Um, you look at him and maybe you wonder if he's a jack of all trades and he, did he max out his game? Was he only, was he, I think sometimes when scouting players, Brogdon, you wonder if in the NBA, would he be a guy who's above average at everything or will he have some categories where he is great? And I think so far we're seeing the categories in which he's great. He's excellent in the pick and roll. He knows how to navigate screens. He's an unbelievable passer. Um, just great vision, great accuracy. Um, there were concerns about his jump shot um, translating. I don't know what his percentages are so far. I think I don't think they're that great. Um, but the thing is, is they're having him run pick and roll, and that's what he's best at. And he is just a rock-solid defender. He knows how to defend. He can switch screens. He's a tough defender. Yeah, he had, he had so much of what you love to have and high-end role players on your roster. And teams, I think, did focus a little bit too much on some of those negatives, um, including his athleticism and his age. But the guy just does so many things well on the court. And already with the Milwaukee Bucks, I give them credit. They've put him in a situation to succeed early on this season. We have talked earlier. The other thing I wanted to touch on is uh, we, we talked earlier about Westbrook and Harden and even Anthony Davis, for that matter, having these like video game statistical seasons. Yet we have not talked about the leading scorer in the NBA. Uh, you know, it's it, it, we're now double digit games into the uh, into the season. And what is going on with DeRozan? 34 points a game? I mean, like, I know all these other guys are getting these uh, crazy accolades and everybody's talking about, wow, look at the crazy seasons. It feels like everybody's talking about the crazy season that Westbrook and Harden and maybe even Anthony Davis are having. Not as many talking about the fact that DeMar DeRozan is averaging 34 points a game. (laughs) How is this happening? So watching DeRozan in past years, I used to say to myself, man, this dude could be like the best player in the league if he could if he could just shoot threes. And he still doesn't shoot threes. But so far, he has been the best player in the NBA, um, statistically at least. I mean, 34 points per game, and he's been super efficient is just outrageous. Um, really, I just think he's doing everything that he's done well in the past, and he's just doing it better. I really think it's, I think it's as simple as that. Never mind the fact that he is just red hot right now. Um, maybe he'll experience some regression at some point during the season. But at the same time, you can't rule him out having a career year. The dude is just slaying it right now from from all levels of the floor besides besides three-point range. <laughs> it's um, kind of watching like a, a player from the, ni- the 90s or early uh, 2000s where the three-pointer isn't a part of their game. Um I still I still watch him play and I still wonder what he could be <laughs> with a three pointer. But what we're seeing right now is really really special and uh, uh, it's 
been tremendous for the Raptors because they're one of those teams where, you know, referring to what we said before, they're getting solid play from their reserves. Um, that's what's really enabling them to have a, one of the better teams in the league, in addition to DeRozan obviously just leading the way. All right, so he's averaging 34 a game, and we've got a lot of season left, right? If I gave you over under 28 on DeRozan, he ends the season averaging blank points per game, over under 28. Um, I'd I'd say the over, Chris. Why? I, I I think just how much they're using him, and it's not like it's not like he didn't average twenty four, twenty five, twenty four. I think last year. Sure, I think I think the way they're utilizing him and leaning on him as as the guy in their roster. I I think he could sustain over twenty eight. All right, so there was the individual stat that stands out a lot. I want to say the team stat in terms of offensive efficiency, defensive efficiency, and how teams are uh, succeeding so far, the team stat that stands out so far, to me at least, um, so DeRozan leading the league in scoring obviously stands out, especially with all all the talk of Westbrook and Harden. Team-wise, I talked earlier about how the only team that's in the top five in both offense and defense uh, efficiency-wise is the Clippers. When you look at the offensive efficiency numbers, number five in the league is the Clippers, right? No surprise. Number four, Toronto. Most people thought they're top two, three seed in the <laughs> East, right? <laughs> number three, Cleveland. Okay, they were just in the finals last year. They got LeBron, Kyrie, and Love. No surprise. Number one is Golden State. Not shocking to anyone. The number two team in the league in offensive efficiency is Tom Thibodeau's Minnesota Timberwolves. <laughs> What is going on? It's it's Andrew Wiggins, man. I guess He's a superstar. So. Also, it's Wiggins. Ta- Towns has his partner in crime now. Wiggins has been just absolutely unbelievable. I think I think that's really the key right there. Towns Towns has his, has his partner in crime. Wiggins Wiggins. I, who knows if he'll sustain this? I don't know. I think he's averaging twenty six right now, and he's doing it like a fifty. 54% three point percentage. He's been unbelievable, Chris. Unbelievable. Hey, he hey. looks he, he he's living he's looking like the guy that everybody hyped up prior to the draft. That that's the best thing we can say about him. How much do you think Tom Thibodeau hates being number 2 in offense and 24th <laughs> in defense? Like he hates it. He hates this so much. Like this is his nightmare. He's second hey. in the league in offense and 24th in defense. These are things I would have never in my life ever suspected possible. Even through 10 games. I'm a little surprised that they haven't been better defensively. I mean, uh, offensively they've been ridiculous, but I I think maybe before the season, I think I think in our prediction podcast, I mentioned how I think They'll be a playoff team, and one of my reasons why was because I thought they would be better defensively under Thibodeau. Um, but that hasn't been the case, like you said. Maybe at some point they they do really kind of take a step up on that under the floor, though. And then maybe who knows? They become one of the top top fifteen or so teams in the league. They will be. They will take an uptick in defense. There's no way around it. There's just no way. It's impossible. There's no way Tom Thibodeau, who like the last several years he's coached, whether it was in Boston or uh, Chicago, the guy has had. And again, they're probably not going to be top five. They might not even be top ten, but they'll be middle of the pack. Twenty fourth is an anomaly so far. They're not going to be that bad defensively. I don't think. So I have an interesting Timberwolves stat for you right here. I was just clicking through the offensive 
the uh, the advanced stats rankings. In the first half this season, they have the best offensive rating in basketball. But in the second half of, of games, they are the fourth worst. So they are dominating in the first half of games offensively, and they are struggling in the second half with a 94 offensive rating in the second half of games so far. So it's really been a tale of two halves for them so far, and they've just been struggling defensively throughout, though. All right, let's come, up with the, let's, get, let's come up with uh, some ridiculous reasons as to why that would be so. Do we have any idea? I think, you know what I think? At least, and again, I, it's it, no, I don't want to say it because it might, it, it, immediately there'll be somebody that will do the statistical analysis and prove it wrong, but I always feel like I'm watching them that it's a little too much Levine. You know what I mean? And especially when they get down. They've struggled at the end of ga- They had you know a hell of a time at the end of games last year. And they don't, I would say at least part of it. And so here, this is one that people can't just go look up. They still don't have their pecking order figured out at all. Right? When they get in these games and you're talking about something's close, five minutes left to go. All right, who is getting the ball on a regular basis? The good teams know what their go-to, what their go-to deal is. And I still think they're searching. They will inevitably figure it out as time goes on, but there's still a team that searches for it. And so that would be at least part of why the offensive rating would be down as compared to the first half. Because in the first half, you're just playing, right? But in the second half, it feels like they're, uh, they don't really know what they're doing or what they're going to. Is it Towns? Who's the guy? And maybe it'll emerge that Wiggins is just going to be the guy. But Wiggins has always seemed a little more passive to me, and Levine has seemed more like the give-me-the-damn-ball guy, and that probably doesn't help them the most. It's got to be Wiggins and Towns. Yeah, um, I think I think you could be on to something there, Chris. I think in some ways maybe just those guys aren't there yet. Uh, it could be as simple as that where Wiggins, Levine, Towns, um, really they're, they're big three young players just not the level yet where they need to be to, to be a go-to option when defense really ramps up um, towards the end of games. Because um, I know Towns, Towns as much as, I mean, he's unbelievable, an unbelievable young player. Uh, he, he hasn't even been quite where he can be so far this year. He's a, had a couple down games so far. Um, he's, I don't want to knock Carl Anthony Towns. He's, he's a stud. But in the second half of games, I think, I think at some point maybe he'll he'll pick up his play and maybe he'll be that go-to option um, at the end of games. And oh, if today's his birthday for the record. He turned 21 today. Happy birthday so, to Carl so maybe, Anthony. Maybe today's the day he turns the page and he, he becomes their go-to option down the stretch. As soon as he uh, drinks some alcohol for the first time in his life. <laughs> he's yeah. going to turn into Superman after he drinks his first beer tonight, right? I think that's probably the case. Uh, what are you writing about this week? Do you know yet? So this week, uh, gonna have we're gonna have um, a little thing on Wiggins, who uh, we were talking about, and his improvements as a jump shooter, and then we're gonna kind of juxtapose that against Justice Winslow, who hasn't quite made the improvements that he's need to make. He he needs to make to become a great player in the NBA, and I think those two guys serve as good examples of what can happen when a jump shot is enhanced, uh, exiting college and coming into the NBA. Well, I will certainly keep a lookout for it on TheRinger.com. Kevin, you're the man. Thanks, buddy. Thank you for having me, Chris. You're the man, too. Thanks for listening to another edition of the NBA Show. 